I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news. This week's show is sponsored by Invest Engine. Do you know what Invest Engine is, Steve? I do, yes. This is the ETF investment platform, uh, and we talked about it quite a bit when we did our Playing Footsie uh, Awards show. Yep, that's right. Uh, we we know there's always capital at risk when you invest in basically anything at all, but I guess we know realistically that we should probably just own ETFs and, and be done with it rather than doing what we kind of actually do. But but it does sound boring, doesn't it? I don't think it is boring, but what makes you think it's boring? Well, I like owning businesses and I like seeing how much I have invested in like each of my businesses. I like owning exciting things like, like Kellogg's and Realty Income, not like Vanguard World ETF or iShares Weird Tech ETF. Well, that's one of the best things about Invested Engine, I think, is that you, you can actually see the stocks that you own. So there's like a portfolio look through uh, that lets you see how much of your portfolio is taken up with Kellogg's or Greg's based on the ETFs that you actually own. Oh, OK. Uh, but they charge fees for this, right? Because we don't like paying fees as investors. They don't, actually. Uh, there's no ISA charges. There's no invest engine fees. And the only fees you'll pay are the, the, the fees that the funds themselves charge, which is the same as anywhere else. Wait, so there's no account fee? That's right. So that means... <laughs> that means it's cheaper to buy a Vanguard VWRL thing on invest engine than it is on actual Vanguard. Yeah, that's correct. So um, Vanguard charge an account fee for their ETF uh, and Invest Engine doesn't. So actually buying the Vanguard All World ETF is cheaper to buy on Invest Engine than it is on Vanguard itself. Huh. Well, that's that's worth knowing. Um, okay, so if people use the link in the description and sign up for free, you can basically build your own portfolio of ETFs and see what you own. Uh, and if you go through our link at the below to sign up and invest at least £100, you can claim a free £25 welcome bonus. T's and C's apply for that. Um, but that's our sponsor, Invest Engine. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. It's the start of the fourth quarter, and I'm here with Steve D. Paul is somewhere else. Uh, we're here to talk about our portfolios and some stocks and a little bit of news, but mostly just how we're feeling about markets right now. It's been a sort of fairly uh, quiet time for us for the time being, but um, we're both here. We're both here ready to share our thoughts and so on and so forth. It's been an interesting week around uh, the UK, I guess, a fair bit. The National Grid, I was reading today, has started saying there might be some three-hour power cuts in a worst-case scenario this winter, which doesn't sound like much fun. Tesco reported its earnings earlier this week, and their revenues are up and their profits are down because of basically inflation and holding down prices. Elon Musk, who was buying Twitter and then was not buying Twitter, is now buying Twitter again. Um, and the CNN Fear and Greed Indicator uh, has pushed its way into fear, uh, which is up from extreme fear the last time I looked. Uh, through all of this, though, I'm reminded that there is no US market so bad that it can't be undone by a massive decline in the pound, which fell from uh, fell down to 1.07, has gone up to 1.15 and is now down again today. This is Thursday to 1.12. Steve, how's your week been? Any of these things interest you or other stuff on your mind? Um, 
a bit of both, really. I guess I've had other things on my mind, but uh, the, the Twitter deal's interesting to me. It seems like Elon has finally decided that he had actually agreed and signed a contract to buy Twitter, and that it's probably in his uh, best interest that he does that. You may as well buy Twitter when you're paying a lump of some, whether you, you know, a lump sum of money, whether you actually do it or don't. Um, it does seem strange, though, after all of this bashing and all of this uh, name-calling, essentially, is what it has been, that he's going to buy it at exactly the same price that he agreed to buy it. Um, that's quite that's quite embarrassing. Um, the other bit of news I saw was the hilarious Tesla robot, which needed about four people to hold it up just to wave. I mean, Boston Dynamics must have been terrified when they saw that thing uh, barely managed to walk down the stage and wave. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it looked so ridiculous. Um, but I've been told that apparently uh, the Tesla bot is doing it all on Vision or something, and the uh, Boston Dynamics is just programmed. Uh, I don't know whether I really truly believe that or not. I think the yes, the Boston Dynamics robots when they're dancing have blatantly been programmed to dance. Uh, but I don't think they're doing it all through a lack of sight, or definitely not the same, a, a different type of sight to the uh, Tesla Tesla bot. But uh, in terms of stocks, Steve, it's been all right actually, hasn't it? I think Monday was a pretty good day. Tuesday was a pretty bad day. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday today, as we record, have been uh, well, a uh, uh, mildly okay day, and uh, today is a bit flat. Uh, and you know, in the sort of the year we've had, you'd, you'd take a bit of flat, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. I think I was hearing today the S and P's down about twenty something percent for the year, going into the sort of fourth quarter. So uh, one of my start of year predictions, none of these is going very well so far, um, was that the S and P would produce an above average year. Um, I, to be honest, mostly thought the Fed would hold down. This is connected to a couple of things here. One was that the Fed would hold down rates for longer um, rather than tackling inflation, which they have not done. Uh, the other was that inflation would top out, which it has not done, uh, which means that I am hanging everything on the idea of Blackboard being acquired, which was my uh, pick for the start of the year that I was least confident about. And I think I only came up with it because you said we had to think of an acquisition target. So I tried to find one. I came up with that. That stock was up about 18 or so percent the other day because there's a bunch that have changed their stake from passive to active. Uh, so activist interest. Might it get sold? I mean, it's looking like my best chance to get one out of three at the moment from the start of this year. I felt like I wanted to go with the predictions. In fairness to me, one, fairly bold, uh, so not boring stuff, and two, measurable, tangible stuff. Uh, so with specific numbers that can be evaluated for being right or being wrong. And to be, I guess, brutal about my uh, my own predictions here, it doesn't really matter. No one was thinking around the fuzzy edges if I said the S&P was going to have a good year, minus 20% would have qualified or something like that. But... Uh, I am currently, yeah, hoping for a massive fourth quarter rally just so I can be right about something. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, I saw there was a more takeover talk today. I think we're starting to see your uh, your KKRs and your uh, your Vista equities and your Toma Bravas are starting to make a lot of acquisitions. And uh, today the new one is uh, Compass Real Estate, which I think I've spoke to you about before, Steve. It went public last year. 
Uh, it was a really fast growing, and I mean really fast growing, like its revenue was growing at a couple of hundred percent. Um, we're talking low numbers here, um, but it, it was growing pretty fast. Uh, and it's gone from, I think it listed at about $30, it's $2 at the moment. And uh, that's low enough for Vista today, who uh, have said they are exploring a deal to uh, take it private. Um, so that would be an interesting that would be an interesting move. I think when we're starting to see the KKRs and the Vistas and what have you get moving, KKR have made a couple of uh, European acquisitions in the last month. Uh, Solar Energy Company was one of the ones that jumped out to me. Um, do they think that's a bottom, Steve? Is there any way of guessing that? I'm not sure there's a way of guessing a bottom. I don't think there's a bottom yet because I am still hearing um, what to me are hard to understand noises about fed pivots and fed tapering and all this other kind of stuff for the point uh this has been going on for a while and it made no sense to me before and it makes no sense to me now sooner or later this will turn out to be correct right at some point the fed will stop uh raising rates quite so aggressively and it will coincide with a bunch of people saying that the fed are going to stop raising rates quite so aggressively but i'm not sure that i think there's much kind of skill in uh, working out when that's happening it's much the same as people constantly calling stock market crash uh, from what i can see of it sooner or later they're right but that doesn't mean they're particularly judging this uh, in any any desperately skilled way that makes me want to kind of pay attention it's a good time to be shopping though isn't it if you're a kind of big company uh, and you there's a lot of smallish cap uh not profitable uh, mostly things that are having a hard time of it at the moment they've just become a lot cheaper than they were say 12 months ago uh, we were chatting about 10 days ago i think when i was trying to work out what to do with some money to invest and one of the sort of things i banded around was why is it the dumbest idea in the world to just buy something like Berkshire Hathaway? Because they're always going to have cash around. They will wait and wait and wait on their cash. And they have been waiting and waiting and waiting on their cash, mostly uh, to the frustration of a lot of people who are mostly not their shareholders for something to buy. And it looks like increasingly there are coming opportunities to buy. I'm not saying I think there's some desperately big news coming out of Berkshire. They're probably just buying more Occidental. And they seem hell bent on owning as much of that as possible. But what I kind of think, though, is that it's an interesting time for a kind of acquisition activity as things that have come off a long way because their bright future suddenly has a brick wall in front of it. Um, it starts to kind of take off a little bit. Interesting um, documentary on um, Netflix at the moment about Occidental Petroleum, Steve, or slightly about Occidental Petroleum anyway. It's about... Um, so the one you um, told me about. Yeah, yeah. about Army <laughs> Hammer, the actor. Uh, it turns out his uh, grandfather, who is also Army Hammer, which is short yep. for Armand, as in Armand Hammer, you would not believe doesn't own the brand Armand Hammer. He owns Occidental Petroleum. But they were nuts, <laughs> and they were well into their bribery. They were in a lot of... Uh, they, they, they were in quite a lot of lawsuits, and it turns out that Army Hammer, I mean, we're going to use the word allegedly here, uh, allegedly he's into um, cannibalism is one of the things that gets revealed in the in the documentary, so that's possibly why he doesn't have an acting career anymore, uh, although I will use the word allegedly again because they seem a bit lawsuity. Um but yeah, that's an interesting one. House of Hammer on Netflix. If you've, uh, is it on? No, it's on Discovery. House uh, House of Hammer. It's on Discovery. If you get a chance to watch that, that's a wild ride. Um, but Steve, shall we move on? Yeah, let's let's get on to some other stuff. Okay, cool. Let's talk portfolios then. So it's the start of Q4, and that means that all the kind of high-powered investors have just been sending in their 13Fs while we wait for ours to appear. Um, we thought we'd have a look at what's going on with the portfolios that we kind of uh, run and manage, I guess, for basically ourselves. So 
Steve, what's been going on at the kind of top end of your portfolio? What does that look like at the moment? Um, so for me, I think there'll be no surprises, or maybe one surprise in, in the top three of mine. So uh, my top three at the moment is Amazon, it's Alphabet, and it's Netflix in that order. And it's been jumping around a bit, just mainly because I've, I've averaged down quite heavily on my Netflix position. I was a little bit early on that when I jumped the gun. I Ackmaned, if you will. And um, I've been constantly adding to that position now at one point i was about two thousand six hundred pound down on it which is quite a significant amount of money because it's you know my position uh is about five grand so i was about 50 percent down on it uh fx has come to the rescue a little bit and obviously netflix has been creeping up over the last uh at least um sort of six weeks or so so that's got to the point now where i'm only about 600 pound down on it and it's looking like a uh, a pretty nice little position. The problem is, is that it's vastly oversized. Uh, how I, how much I originally wanted it to be, but I, I am still very bullish on Netflix. I don't think I need to go over Amazon and Alphabet because I think we talk about them a lot and why we're bullish about them. But with Netflix, um, I'm still very bullish on their um, their ad campaign that's coming up there. Um, ad supported uh, content and uh, i was listening to the streetwise podcast today i don't know if you've heard that one with jack uh, jack and jackson mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they were talking about uh, netflix's ad load uh, and this is per content hour when this ad supported model comes out how much they think uh, they're going to be advertising per content hour of, of netflix content and apparently they're only looking for four minutes um, and when you think about um, watching on TV, I mean, TV is uh, the advertising is just awful, isn't it? I mean, it's every mm -hmm. 15 minutes you get a five a five minute break. So I think four minutes over an hour is is pretty good. And the reason I think that's good as a shareholder as well is that it's going to be a little introduction into advertising for people. But they always crank that up over time. And that's a way of cranking their revenue up over time as well. Apparently, they're asking for an average $65 per milli. Uh, so that's their impression ratio, um, which is incredible if they can get it. Um, uh, Jack Howe was saying that the average rate uh, um, on TV at the moment is about $45 per milli. Um, and it's even less than that if you're in the scatter market. Um, so that's interesting. I, I think they can drive the price up a little bit because it's only going to be four minutes of con uh, four minutes of ad load per content hour. So there's going to be a scarcity of product there, and uh, you know, in the same way that um, people really do fight to get in in front of like. Um, you know, when the Super Bowl's on or an advertising or something of that kind of nature, I bet you there'll be a little fight to get in on Stranger Things on day one when that first uh, new season comes out. So Netflix might be able to achieve this, Steve. Yeah, look, I mean, we've talked up Netflix and its kind of proposition of having certain numbers of viewers and subscribers and so on uh, in some fairly decent detail, I think, over uh, a few podcasts. We had a, at one stage, every time Netflix had an earnings review, we talked about that and its number of subscribers, and we had a quarterly, here's what we've been watching on Netflix. But I think a couple of things for the for your portfolio specifically, I guess. You mentioned it's kind of bigger than you intended it to be. It's now the third biggest thing in your portfolio behind uh, Amazon and Alphabet, I think you said in that order. Um, there's worse things in the world, and you know this as well as I do, than having a stock that's doing really well, taking up quite a lot of your portfolio, uh, one way or another, because as we were talking about the other day, Netflix is actually a stock that's done pretty well uh, in all of this stuff. I mean, its last couple of earnings calls have not been positive. It's been losing subscribers and forecasting to lose them kind of further ahead. But it did look like, if you like kind of thinking about stock price movements, 
a stop that had got itself into a situation where it didn't need that much to either go right or stop going wrong uh, for it to launch quite a decent recovery. So you kind of saw your way into that and then didn't go the full Ackman and then sell it again two minutes later because you decided it was basically a bust. Um, the stuff on the advertising is really interesting because one of the kind of question marks I had after the last one was exactly what's the kind of model going to look like here? Is it going to be the kind of thing where we have an ad-supported tier that is what I would call Spotify style, so prohibitively bad and we try and funnel everybody into the paid tier by offering them something terrible for free, but something that could be so much better if you'd only give us 15 quid a month or something? Mm. Or is it going to be a kind of thing, uh, if you have that, that's not a particularly attractive, as far as I can tell, proposition for advertisers, because everyone's going to run off that tier and they're not going to see the ads. Um, or is it going to be a kind of uh, good thing for an advertiser, but with less of an incentive for people to kind of upgrade? And the way you're kind of talking about that to me makes it sound like it's the second one. Uh, it's going to be quite an attractive uh, thing for Netflix ad-funded subscribers, if we call them that for the time being. Um, and that's going to make an attractive package for um, advertisers and trying to charge quite a premium there, which you might well get given their kind of position in this market, I guess. And that's it, isn't it? I think um, I was looking at some data just on their financial releases the other day, and we're talking about like things they've come up against recently in terms of like engagement of watches. Um, it, uh, Stranger Things, just their most recent um recent series has done seven times the viewing hours of Top Gun and it's done double the viewing hours of Obi-Wan um, Obi Kenobi this series on, on Disney Plus so they've got some really really good content they've got some crap like everybody will tell you they've got some crap but they have got some really good content in, in there as well and if they're going to allow advertisers to sort of pick and choose what content they want to be associated with which is what you would assume they would want them to do mm -hmm. um, you know I think that's a really attractive proposition and the fact that they can slowly crank up the four minutes to five minutes to eight minutes to ten minutes per per hour. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be on the ad supported tier. I'm happy to pay to not be on the ad supported tier. But as an investor looking on uh, from the outside, I mean, if you can't see a clear path to growth for Netflix, uh, especially when they're starting with, you know, I think this is the best case way of introducing adver uh, advertisements for them. So they're introducing this best case advertising scenario. This is only going to generate more revenue for them. So um, I think it's all looks good from here. In terms of my position, though, which was the original point, uh, I probably will cut this position at some point in the next year. Uh, not cut it entirely, but I will. I probably wouldn't even right size it, but I would look to trim it uh, down a little bit because... As much as I am bullish on Netflix, I wouldn't say it's in my top three ideas. Uh, I wouldn't say it's outside of Alphabet. I wouldn't say it's outside of Amazon. I wouldn't say it's outside of ASML. I don't mm -hmm. think it's too much further below that point. But do I want to bet my house on it? Uh, no. So I guess the question then becomes, and I take that point, and it, as it is, one thing I note about your top three, um, and I don't have a problem with this at all for what it's worth, uh, is it's heavily exposed to advertising and it's heavily big cap US. Um, and that's fine. You can be absolutely bullish advertising if you like. Uh, and if you are, it makes sense to have those three things as the top three. Um, so your plan is to try and cut down Netflix then rather than just grow the other stuff around the side of it, as it were, um, and, you know, leave it where it is and stick money into ASML to push ASML up past it again. I don't know quite how much of it is which in your portfolio, whether that's viable or not, but you get the idea. 
Yeah, well, the issue with buying a lot more of the other stocks around at the moment is they're also US stocks, and you, you feel like you're getting mm -hmm. a bit of a raw deal at the moment, especially when you can look at the UK market, as we said last week, and say there's quite a lot of stocks in there that we think is good value and that we think we perhaps should start building positions in. I mean, we're talking right move here is one that we both like and both have started entering a position in. I've been looking at Halion recently, which actually has a surprising list of very good brands, and I would quite like to uh, continue building a position in that. Um, but there, there's just a few stocks dotted around the moment, even in the EU, where you know the the euro has had uh, some issues against the dollar as well. Um, there's stocks across there that I really like. We're talking about all the Swiss stocks, but there's still Adidas. Um, there's uh, Alstom, which I've been building a position in. There's Biomaru that we talked about last week. There's ASM International in uh, mm -hmm. in Holland, which is another really good company. And, I mean, one of the companies I did buy was ASML. I bought some more ASML uh, in the last two weeks as well when that's down. That's uh, so so far been timed quite well because it's shot straight back up. So there are plenty of opportunities back home at the moment. I'm still trying to shrug off that dollar issue. Uh, I guess over the long term, we would say to ourselves, if we were looking at ourselves, don't worry, it'll all even itself out. But right here, right now in the moment, it just doesn't feel like the right time to be going and splashing a lot of money in the US. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't really have a view on whether these things even out over the long term for what it's worth. I mean, I think certainly within our lifetimes, people might run uh, kind of different monetary policies. I mean, the US is taking a different direction to the UK, and I think the directions that they are going in could well determine their um, situation relative to one another for certainly a few decades in this kind of case. The US is roughly doing what the kind of on paper right thing to do is, which is raise interest rates, um, try and get strength back into the dollar and deal with the likelihood of a recession that will come as a result of it. And the UK has decided it's taken the other way, which is try and fend off the recession by borrowing, I guess they'll say one more time, uh, now that we've got a, a government and that's got its own ideas and so on, and try and grow the economy to repay that debt. Uh, which one's the right one? Um, well, the kind of conventional wisdom says the US. Conventional wisdom can be wrong about plenty of things. I'm not particularly taking a view on it. I talked about the budget last week. We don't need to hear me talk about that again. But um, it's really interesting, though, to watch those two going in different directions. It, it is, isn't it? Um, I guess the issue we have in the... Uh, well, they've got a, a little bit in the Americas as well, is that they, the Treasury keeps spending while the Fed is trying to cut and sort out the balance sheet. Over here, we have a problem where the, uh, the Bank of England was trying to sort out its balance sheet and trying to raise interest rates, and um, the government went on a wild spending spree. And I think that's the difference between the between the two. Um, but, Steve, go on. What's your, what's your top stocks? Yeah, okay, so I'll tell you what the top end of my portfolio looks like a little bit. But just to go back a quarter then for the moment, when I wrote down my stuff at the end of Q3, um, my top, let's say, four for the moment were Berkshire Hathaway B-Shares, Amazon, Citigroup, and Alphabet. Um, so none of those is in my top two anymore. They've all slid down to positions three, four, five, and six uh, now in my portfolio, and I've bought shares in every single one of them uh, in the last quarter. Uh, but coming in at the top is um, at two is now Apple, um, which I bought when it came down to about 145 or so. I was buying it around the time of the Queen's funeral, so slightly before uh, the bottom fell out of the pound. Um, and also Federal Realty Investment Trust, which is a REIT that I mentioned as a stock for Paul a while ago. I don't particularly have any kind of deep plans for this. Uh, my 
suspicion is that it won't be at the top of my portfolio in the future, but um, the yield on that shot up to about 5%, and I thought, well, I'm going to stick a fair bit of cash into this. It's come down a bit since I bought it. That's okay. I don't mind buying more of it. But my idea here is that, well, look, I'm trying to take the long view with my uh, portfolio for the moment. And when I think about what I want this to look in the future, I suspect this will be one of my smaller positions because I intend to kind of invest money into other shares and see opportunities, whatever they may be in the future, that will bring us on and past it. But that now gives me a top three that says that goes Federal Realty Investment, Apple and Berkshire Hathaway, which I guess leaves me disproportionately exposed to Apple. Um, a little bit since that's kind of in the middle and it's by uh, what by what Buffett calls kind of market size Berkshire's second biggest business it owns even though it only owns about 20 percent uh no about well it owns way less than um 20 percent of Apple it owns less than 10 I think but uh that's where I'm at at the moment Amazon City and Alphabet are, are chasing on the heels of them insofar as it's a competition which it isn't it's interesting. So we, I guess we've, I mean, we talk a lot about the stocks that we buy as well. So we're buying a lot of things for, um, usually for a combined reason or at least some combined thinking on something. But did you say Amazon is still is still your biggest? No, Amazon's now at four. Federal oh, Realty Investment Trust, my REIT is biggest. Then it's Apple, then it's Berkshire. Are you um, following Burry? Not exactly, um, and I don't think I'm following Burry in the following sense. So I've been seeing REITs coming down quite a bit. I mentioned the other week that I'd had a few notifications go off, and I couldn't really remember why, but they were basically all property-related uh, mm. things. So they were right move or some bunch of REITs, more or less. Uh, and I think that's a product of interest rates going up for what it's worth, because a lot of REITs are kind of debt-funded, um, because if you distribute all of your earnings, it's quite hard to keep enough back to kind of uh, do anything uh, with. So they rely a lot on bond issuances, they rely a lot on raising debt, um, or they dilute. Um, and Federal Realty has done both of those things in the past. It doesn't look to me like it's massively levered. I looked at when its debt expirations and the maturities on its bonds are. They don't look like they're coming soon to me, and I don't think there's going to be a problem with this, which meant that I think I see this as something that's kind of got swept up in a bit of an overreaction coming down. It was on my radar for some time because it's a real estate investment trust that I can at least understand the moat on, or at least the kind of idea of a moat. It tries to get hold of the best bits of uh, land in second ring, uh, as they call it. So imagine a city centre and then concentric circles coming out. Um, first and second ring uh, locations, there's only finite amounts of that. People will continue to need to shop in those things. So... I liked it a lot and I saw an opportunity and I went and I feel like I steadily built out a position in it, to be honest, but I did it all over the last quarter. Um, there wasn't a day where I went, bang, I'm having 100 shares of this or whatever it was. Uh, but I have managed to kind of creep my way up there in the last um, quarter. And I was slightly surprised it was the biggest thing when I came to write these down um, a few days ago at the start of the, start of the month. Yeah, it's one of the stocks I don't think me and you have actually spoke to each other about too much, I don't think. Um <laughs> No, not much. Um, bearing in mind, I also have a side investment that I don't count in this portfolio. My um, previously cashed out premium bonds got dumped into realty income, and I don't count that as part of my portfolio because it's not, in my view, subject to change. That's a sort of different project that I described about 25 shows ago or something like that. Um, but or In fact, back in January, that's been very nicely, actually, for what it's worth. But uh, it does mean that, I guess, when you think about my investing in total – quite heavily exposed to retail REITs that we're not supposed to like very much at the moment. 
That's true. Although they do look very good at the moment. In fact, I think REITs across the board have come down so much that they're looking really, really interesting. And not just in the US either. They, they, both on our shores as well. I mean, Paul has a rather big holding in um, Seagra. And mm. uh, I, I think he's actually red in And I asked him the other day if he'd, if he'd finally gone red. I remember he was up a long way on it. And he said he was down nearly 30%. So, uh, and I think he had a good price on that. Because I, I seem to remember him being up 80 90%. And to be down 30%, that shows you how far it's fallen. Um, mm. But we were looking at the Tritax big box and the Euro box as well. That's come down an, an awful lot. And then across the pond in uh, in America, I mean, Prologis has come down from, I think, 180 to 100. And uh, the only ones that seem to kind of be holding the ground are the, the really big, sort of powerful ones. So things like Equinix, that's been that's been holding its ground pretty well. And um, things like Digital Realty, though, they're, they're coming down as well. I noticed uh, ISA, investor friend of the show, he's been buying a little bit more of that as well, I think. So uh, interesting time for REITs. Have you got your eyes on any more or are you, you, you're not going to Casper your way into REITs? I'm probably not going to Casper my way into REITs. I did have a nearly notification go off on one that Casper absolutely loves, which is STAG, which is the industrial realty, uh, real estate thing. I think it pays its dividends monthly. I'm not certain about that. I would need to check, so don't quote me on that one. But um, this is one where I set uh, a... Mark, uh, notification for stock market stuff ages and ages ago and then forgot about it um, and it got very close to where I had it set I think I had it set at 27 and I think it got into the higher than that 20s um, can't remember why I put it there but it very nearly got there uh, Jim Chain also is just googling who I was uh, thinking of here who's a noted kind of short seller his next big short idea is in fact data center REITs um, mm. he thinks they're still I mean you put holding up quite well he thinks they're still grossly overpriced uh, from what mm. I can see of it and thinks that one of the kind of structural issues with REITs, and it's true if you have a bigger price cap, is that kind of debt issue, basically, is debt matures and the only thing you can, you need debt to kind of service things. Um, I would look carefully at what the kind of um, debt commitments were on the REITs. I own. Indeed, I did look um, fairly carefully at them and both realty income. Uh, I don't currently own Agree Realty, which is yet another retail REIT that I have historically had. That's held up slightly better. Um but all three of those, I think, have reasonable kind of debt maturities and don't have a load of stuff coming up soon that they'll need to roll at, at difficult rates in the style of someone with, say, a UK mortgage. Um, so if they're coming off their fixed period at the moment, a lot of, there's a lot of talk from what I see both in the Discord and around people I know and just my colleagues and so on of they're coming off a kind of 2% mortgage and they're looking at something close to a 6% uh, renewal for that. And all of a sudden, things look very expensive. Similar sort of story if you're a real estate investment trust, I guess, and you are financing by bonds and you need to reissue them, you're going to roll that at a higher rate and it's going to be expensive. Yeah, and that's that's the the main consideration I think when you you're looking at REITs both both home and abroad. And um, one of the ways they can counter that is by selling properties, but that's that's not a great thing. Um, that's not a great thing, and they've they've got to also if they do start selling stuff so that that that's going to count as profit, and they've got to pay that out over a certain period of time as also. Well. Just be really careful because one of the things you might see is um, REIT balance sheet shrinking, but they're shrinking because they're paying off debt by using mm. their properties to do so. So it's just one of the things to keep an eye on in this period of some high interest. Very good example of selling stuff at the wrong time, uh, for what it's worth as well. If you're a Foster. property person, you yeah, don't want to be selling it at the time. You probably bought it when it was more expensive than it is now, if it's a recent kind of uh, thing. 
But okay, uh, that's the top end of my portfolio. Anyway, it's got a couple of new entrants at the top, which makes it look exciting, even though I don't feel sort of desperately like I've done really exciting things moving around. Let's talk buying. Um, bought anything any good, Steve? Uh, well, I don't know about that because I'm down on both of them. <laughs> but uh, I've this quarter, I've, I've added two uh, sort of bigger positions to my portfolio. I've made some small, little sort of additions towards the bottom end of this portfolio but the the, the two biggest that i've added in uh the first one would be adidas uh to be fair i've been buying this one all quarter it's actually become my ninth biggest position uh it's fallen uh all quarter uh and it's the standard retail issues that you've been experiencing uh at every sort of retail sort of store you've got uh and um especially with Nike who reported the other week and it's all to do with the inventory pressures. They're basically fire sale in their inventory. They want to get the newer, fresher stuff in front of you, but in order to do so, they've got to clear out the warehouse. Uh, I don't know if you've been on uh, Hot UK Deals recently. Uh, whenever the Adidas uh, sale comes up, there's a lot of comments that say, hey, look, Adidas, the new DFS. Uh, and that's mainly because they're fire sailing everything, uh, everything, all their excess inventory. Um, and that's been hitting the share price. But look, I think that's a lot of short-term pain, long-term gain. I think once they get rid of this inventory, there's the World Cup coming up, which should be very good for Adidas. Their kits have been, uh, in my opinion, uh, well, and in critics' opinion, the best-looking kits. And that usually means there'll be some good sales. Uh, World Cups are usually good times for, for companies like Adidas and for companies like Nike. So that'll be a nice short-term boon to hit the short-term pain. But long-term, Adidas is about 15p. I think that might look a bit worse this time next year, uh, you know, when they've been, been clearing out inventory for maybe not a profit or break-even. Uh, that should look a bit untidy. But going forward, I think we're going to be absolutely fine with Adidas. My other one is actually Adobe. Um, sorry, Adidas is about my ninth biggest position. I don't know if I said that, but Adobe comes in at 16th. Uh, I've only actually bought two tranches of this so far, which uh, it might be interesting for people who heard me uh, poo-poo the Figma deal uh, when mm -hmm. that came out. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's interesting I, for me. <laughs> yeah, so I've I've done a lot of reading about uh, why uh, Adobe has bought Figma, and I'll try and distill it as quickly as I can into a couple of minutes, because um, it doesn't make any sense to me at first, and then it started to make sense to me the more I've read. And it's the idea of technical debt. Uh, and technical debt is, is not actually a debt. It's not a monetary thing. It's the, the debt that's in your technical systems. So if you think about when Adobe uh, started to make its products, it wasn't in a collaboration sort of style environment in the way that we currently work. So if you think about Microsoft Word, if you wanted to uh, have somebody, even just five years ago, you wanted to make a document and you wanted Steve to add something to it for you, you would have to write your bid up, save it, attach the file to an email and send it to Steve. And that's how Microsoft Word worked. And that's how Adobe systems are built. So they can't be collaboratively uh, edited. You would have to save the file. You'd have to send it to somebody else who had an Adobe product and they would have to open it and do it that way. Well, nowadays, Steve and I use Google Docs. So we can both edit the same document at the same time. Steve can be typing at the top of the document and I can be typing at the bottom. He can highlight me, to me something at the top. We can look at it together. We can edit it together. I can pop a full stop in even while he's writing if we need to. And that's how design currently works. Gone gone since of the times where uh, marketing teams was one designer and he produced everything. He just had a stack of work. You know, I need a logo for this. And, you know, this new product needs a logo and this one needs a new uh, bottle wrapper. There's big teams inside of uh, marketing departments and it makes sense that the content writer can be writing the content as you're designing the label as the other guy next to you is doing the uh, logo. 
Uh, and, and that's the problem. Adobe didn't have that and Figma does have it. So the question would be, why don't they just, why don't they just build it? Well, the problem is, is that that might take them three or four years to build that to any decent degree. And by that time, Figma would be a lot bigger. Uh, so they're paying 20 billion now because they would have had to pay 20 billion at any point. And I think they have realized that they had a big weakness in their product that was just about to be exploited. Um, and what this does is it gives them essentially an opera, a brand new operating system for Adobe uh, to to rebuild their products into and to add to Figma's already um, uh, already sort of batch of products that they have, and it just it just limits that technical debt a little bit and doesn't leave them so exposed. So I think it looks pretty cheap at the moment. I think still think it's they've paid too much, but I, I don't think there's anything they can do about that. The price has come down a lot to compensate that risk for me. Hence, it was a buy. Right. So that's kind of the thing that I got around to thinking about with Adobe. We settled on the idea, and I think you still are on the idea, uh, that this was an expensive acquisition. Uh, yeah. Then. Um, we can get over the idea that they, or get towards the idea that maybe they didn't have much choice about it, but that still doesn't change the fact that it's expensive. So when I was kind of thinking about it afterwards, I guess, the way I was trying to think of it was think, okay, whack 20 billion on Adobe's market cap. It was a 20 billion acquisition, right? Yep. Yeah, so whack 20 billion on the market cap then, and let's assume for the moment then that they've got absolutely nothing uh, for this, which they clearly haven't. Do you still like the stock enough 20 billion higher uh, if you have to pay 20 billion more for nothing, which is the worst, worst, worst case scenario? I suppose they've just been fined 20 billion then or something like that. Um, yeah, it's not a terrible buy, 20 billion up from here. I mean, it's a nicer buy 20 billion short, but realistically, they're not acquiring nothing. But even if you think of that as your kind of margin of safety thing here, assume for the moment that they've achieved nothing by doing this and just wasted all the damn money, even if we think that probably some of it uh, is an overpayment. If you still like it there, that's probably the easiest way to think about these kinds of things, I think. And that makes a lot of kind of sense to me here. Here's something that makes kind of slightly less sense on the subject of Adidas for the moment. You said they have the nicest kits. Do you think many people buy World Cup football kits based on how nice they are? I mean, do you kind of buy a Paraguay shirt because you think it looks better than the kind of England one? Well, yeah, but it helps that the uh, kit actually looks nice for the people who are nationals to that country. Yeah, Paraguayans, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, like Paraguayans aren't going to buy it if it looks awful. Uh, that, that that's the thinking behind that one. But it, have you actually, I don't know if you've actually looked at the kits. There are some shockers out there, but actually, <laughs> Adidas's kits look they look really nice. Okay, uh, yeah, I so I get the thought then. That the idea is that people of that country are more likely to buy the kits if they look good. I always assume kind of football. Um, I, maybe I'm thinking of more domestic football, I guess. I mean, there are some people who wander around in pretty horrific uh, kits that their clubs have churned out kind of year after year because they will buy that year's kit kind of come what may. But yeah, maybe there is something to the idea that you might go just once uh, for a kind of England kit if you think it looks sort of particularly good. Adidas looks cheap and has looked cheap for ages. I mean, you pointed out the thing that I was going to say, which is that Nike reported earnings, those earnings came in. Well, I thought they came in pretty all right in terms of the numbers they actually reported for what it's worth and then just i think either guidance or something else in the report just drove the stock down inventory fairly, fairly sharply yeah that's the one um i was watching a video from wall street journal uh today i really should stop saying that i should say oh i saw in wall street journal uh which makes it sound like i was reading rather than looking at youtube and somehow that sort of makes me feel uh, more legitimate as a, a researcher of stuff but um uh, yeah, I was looking at uh, kind of general bullwhip inventory stuff and the thought that that might have some way to go uh, for the time being, because for a long time, retailers, including Nike, had done a decent job of kind of matching their 
inventory levels to demand. Uh, and then, of course, COVID happened and demand went through the roof. Um, and then post-COVID happened, I guess, and demand went through the floor. Um, so companies like Nike, like Adidas, got hit quite hard uh, by that sort of thing, I guess, because they're, <laughs> this word again, athleisure um, wear, uh, was, was extremely popular with kind of stay-at-home workout people. But... Um, I Adidas is constantly on my radar of things I have an interest in. It's making its way up your uh, portfolio then, uh, about nine, you said? Yeah, it is actually at its full allocation now. Um, it is mm-hmm. one of those stocks that's very difficult to uh, to to not buy. When, when you get fresh uh, money into the portfolio, you look at it and you think, okay, well, what, how, where is everything from the last time I bought it? And without a doubt, Adidas has dropped another 6% by then. So, uh, you know, there's always been a small, you know, okay, 200 in Adidas, and then we'll have a look at all the other things. Um, but right where it sits now, uh, I'm down about 12% on it or something like that. Uh, it, right now is about as much money as I would like to put in Adidas until the portfolio value grows, uh, obviously, um, which has not been an issue this year at all. Cool. Um, so buying on my side has been fairly spread out. I mean, by and large with my portfolio, if I own it and if I didn't sell it, I pretty much bought it. So I'll talk about kind of, I guess, what is some of the more interesting parts of my buying. And it's the stuff I've been doing in recent days and weeks, which is more or less UK-sided or almost entirely UK-sided. So going into this uh, quarter, I think I owned uh, UK stock positions in Games Workshop, and Experian and Rightmove, I think. And coming out of this quarter, I own significantly bigger positions in um, Rightmove, a significantly smaller position in Games Workshop, uh, a new position in Halma, and the only stock that I haven't bought or sold at all uh, this quarter is Experian. So let's talk about some of the stuff I kind of did with the other things. Games Workshop and Rightmove, I actually sold both of them uh, entirely because I'd sort of given up about uh, a month and a half ago the idea that I was going to be able to turn them into kind of meaningful uh, positions. They both run to about 20% higher than I bought them at. There is no FX to uh, compensate for anything in that way. And I thought that's enough of these things that I have about 200 quid in each of these things. I'm kicking them out uh, effectively. And then we had the kind of big run on the pound and so on and everything went down and I grabbed some shares uh, again in right move so my right move because you only kind of write these things down uh, not write these things down i mean make note of these things um when it's the end of a quarter or i do anyway it looks like my right move stake has increased by 900 percent um which strictly it has but i sold it and then bought a whole load more afterwards so it wasn't just a kind of um adding to it when i saw a moment there and actually, that probably worked out slightly better for me, but entirely by accident. I, I pretty much left that stock for dead and then came back to it when it fell below, I think it fell below a fiver uh, or something along those lines. Still is, I think. Um, Halma is one that I've talked about on this show. I quite like it, and I was trying to buy it below uh, 20 quid ago and just about managed that, but got part of a stake in Games Workshop I sold, and then this thing really, really had a big fall as it turned out that it's not as inflation-resistant as maybe people thought it was, because... Their sales are kind of dropping off. I have, I think, mentioned this before, and I thought this is kind of more central to people's being than maybe a lot of the outsiders think. I feel like it's one of these things that is not quite a cult, but the people on the outside don't realise how much the people on the inside care about it. 
Um, mm. And I thought that would lead to it being a bit more robust uh, in the face of inflation than it looks like it will be. However, uh, stock went absolutely mad and down, and I have bought back part of it. So it looks like I've sold 80% of my investment, which I did. I sold the other 20% as well, and I've now about bought a small part of it kind of back. So my buying, apart from the two bits I mentioned at the top of my portfolio, both of which are new, um, has mostly been kind of UK-sided and recently uh, as I start to see some attractive kind of things there. I really want to try and get some diploma shares at a decent price here. I think I might still get a chance to, but I haven't quite. I've been very, very close to uh, pulling a trigger on that one, but not yet. So Games Workshop, are you out of that entirely now? No, I now have two shares in it, which okay. I give it, a, give it another quarter and I will either have... Um, multiply that by a factor of 10 or have sold it all that's what i was going to say because i, I was looking at the um one of the criticisms that they get is that they're not great at monetizing their ip and i was it was mm -hmm. only the other week i was i don't know if i mentioned it on the show or not but i was looking at um all of their release uh, game releases that they've got and they've been heavily heavily pushing out warhammer to a number of studios and getting them to create content and it would yep. only take one or two of them, and, and some of them are already getting good reviews as well, good preview reviews. Um, so I would suggest that any issue they're having could be uh, short-term, or at least the, the problems on the ground can be uh, can be solved by, by their digital content, uh, at least in the short term. Um, it is an interesting stock to me. How, Steve, how, how big of a position is that in your portfolio? It is currently 13th. Uh, in my portfolio, which is not that big. I have about mm. 30 shares or so uh, in this, about 600 quid. There might be opportunities to do a bit more there, but I'm starting to run out of things in the ISO that I can deposit a little bit, which means mm. that I need to just think a bit carefully about how I want to kind of proceed around that. I'm not averse to investing in a GIA or something along those lines, but um, under 200 and I start, uh, sorry, under 20 uh, and I start taking a bit more of an interest there. So these are stuff that are kind of perhaps coming up on the rails and it feels like there's been a fair bit of volatility around in the UK markets and I wouldn't be surprised if I got an opportunity to do something there that was a bit more meaningful. Mm. Any others that you're looking to add in the very short term? Um, I have a constant interest in LSEG, uh, which I think you own and um, have done for a little while and have talked about on this show a fair bit. Uh, that would be nice um, to buy. And to be honest, there's about another three that I'm looking to understand uh, better. So they include Croder International, Spirax, Sarco Engineering, uh, and there's another one that I've now forgotten what it is. It's not Aston Martin. Um, which Rolls Royce? I, no, uh, I prefer Rolls Royce to Aston Martin for what it's worth, but um, I'd forgotten about Aston Martin until I remembered it the other day, and I was thinking, is there any stock I think I would never buy? Um, and I think it's probably that one. And if I got a free share, I would sell it so fast. It's unbelievable. Hmm. Um, so I, yeah. I, I was going to say, I think I've got, I've got a couple of positions I'm looking to build out a bit more, but I, the one hmm. I'm probably going to focus on is Halion. Uh, I've only got a really small position that's hundred shares and it's, uh, uh, it's about 260, I think for share or somewhere around that kind of range. So it's about 250 quid position. Uh, and I'm thinking potentially, uh, for, maybe 5x that position uh, over a period of time. The problem is it's so steady, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, a consumer stock, essentially, so it's not going to move around too much. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely what I'm looking into. Should we move on to sells? Yep. What have you been selling, if anything? 
Uh, so not too many cells. I, I'd usually make more than this, um, but um, I've cleaned out Coupang entirely. Um, I got a lucky period with FX and a little run-up in share price, and I sold it at about a 5% loss, which is great because I was as far as 60% down on that at one point. Um, I've also moved Etsy, Roku, and Ut uh, Unity out of my um, out of my main account. They now reside in the, the more riskier pie. Um, Unity, today I voted as well to dilute myself as well, which was quite an interesting thing. I didn't think I'd ever do that as a shareholder, but here we are. Uh, that's all to do with the Iron Source uh, merger that's going uh, course, on. Yeah. Um, uh, my biggest mistake um, in the quarter was just trying to second-guess Pinterest instead of just letting it happen. Uh, I still wanted to sell it because I thought it was coming into a whole heap of trouble it turned out it was in a lot less trouble then it got a lot of acti activist interest and then showed off a brand new app called shuffles which is a sort of collage making app which has uh, actually got a lot of people on it already i think it said a hundred thousand people signed up for it uh like the minute it came out or something like that or even the beat to, to beta test it sorry i think was what it had so uh since i sold it it's actually gone up about 35 percent um in price which is always disappointing because it was literally within a week and a half of me selling it. i was like i could not have timed this any worse but steve uh anything you've been selling yeah so i've sold a few things and most of them i don't have great reasons for selling other than thinking i had other things i wanted to do with the money in fact i think that's true of all of these uh, mm. to be honest i don't think any of these really busted um activision blizzard uh, i have cashed my which i was kind of using as a cash storage vehicle Same. um uh but i don't have that anymore uh, that went into some of the stuff that i mentioned before Next year, energy I sold, mostly because I think that utilities in general have got a bit expensive at the moment. I think this is a great company for what it's worth, and I think it's going to do well in the future, and I can see that it has certain kinds of advantages that are going to be near impossible for anyone to replicate. But I think at the prices I was looking at, uh, that was one to go elsewhere. I've also sold NVR and Polaris. Polaris was a weird one. That was just based on share price movements. I had spent ages waiting for that to reach a price I liked, and then it shot up again for what I could see is no discernible reason, really, but um, I got rid of that. NVR, I'm looking to buy back again directly. I can get enough money in there. Um, it's not a good time for house builders, and I, more by luck than judgment, have run out the way of a fairly swift down movement for most of that sector um i think this company's gonna be absolutely fine uh and i think it generates decent cash and i think it's fairly nicely covered against risk i think it's very intelligently run and i would expect them to go buying back stock fairly soon uh which means um all of that is all of these things are things where we've often talked before about our kind of biggest mistakes being i sold this at this uh, or something like that uh, or i didn't buy this at this and now look where the share price is so they're all kind of uh bearish mistakes or bearish minded mistakes i guess mm. that we would um think of ourselves as having made i think all of these has traded at a lower price after i've sold them uh, for what it's worth a lot of them are still there now that was no part of my thesis for selling them, that I think the stock is going down in the near future. It's more just a case of, look, I think this is trading at this at these levels. Uh, this other thing is trading at this price. I would rather be in the other thing than this thing with a long-term view going forward. So I'm taking no credit uh, for the fact that I think I would not be surprised to hear that all of these uh, is lower than where it was where I sold it. Um, wasn't calling market tops particularly. I'm also not 
claiming uh, taking blame for the idea that some of the stuff that I bought may also be lower than it was when I bought it at around that time. Not the game I'm in, particularly. But, um, yeah, the list of stuff that I've historically thought about and mentioned is that's gone. Stone Co. also gone. Teladoc also gone as well. Cool. NVR uh, is probably one of those stocks that's really good to buy in times like this because mm. they're quite happy to uh, buy back stock when their share price is really, really low. Uh, this is not their first rodeo. They're so conservatively run. Um, they're probably the, uh, the the best home builder in America for this kind of situation. Um, go on. They're a strange one in that if I kind of think if I was going to own i don't know four maybe five stocks for the rest of my life and never be able to touch them again um they would be in the conversation i'm not saying they would make it uh because there's some other good contenders up there as well so google would be in that conversation berkshire would be in that conversation i feel like mvr might well make the uh the kind of discussion list for what it's worth but um i'm not in a situation where i have to buy four stocks and keep them for the rest of my life and I think that one of the things one of the things we kind of talk about a little bit is that these kind of free trading opportunity things encourage people to do more stuff uh, and do more stuff than is wise or sensible for their portfolios and the like. And I think there's some truth to that idea, but I also don't feel like I feel like being able to get in and out of positions relatively easily is an advantage compared to having to pay for it. And I don't particularly plan to pretend like I don't have that advantage when I do. Uh, so I'm not kind of thinking I'm going to throw away an opportunity that's there for me and act like I haven't got it. Yeah, and the other thing to sort of note is that American mortgages are very different to a UK mortgage, whereas we only fix for like two or three years usually, or five if we're feeling particularly adventurous. <clears throat> American mortgage tends to be fixed for 25 to 30 years, so the sort of... Um, uh, mortgages that the sort of problems that NVR are going to experience is probably more to do with the fact that mortgages become unaffordable um, and whether that will drive down houses as much as the sort of problem that we might have in Britain where the mortgages are sort of cost prohibitive. Do you see what I mean? Uh, people mm. are worried about them going up even, even further and um, people coming out of fixes now are more than likely to have never experienced rates above two or three percent and they're about to test six uh in america because of the long fix rates have always been fairly high anyway to counter that the, the potential issues that happen in a in a 30 or 25 year uh fix so I think America's somewhat insulated from these issues i would expect america's to be a, a little bit more of a slowdown britain's is trickier um but I don't really want to touch on that, Steve, because I know we've got a stock as well, but is there anything you're looking to sell immediately? Nope, nothing I'm looking to sell immediately, to be honest. This is the least I've thought of my portfolio as a portfolio in ages, for what it's worth. It is now basically just a bunch of stocks uh, hmm. that I own, and I have no sense that this is a shape it's meant to be in 10 years from now, 15 years from now, anything like that. I'd like to hold all these things, but I don't care that one of them is bigger than the other one uh, or how much money is in any particular one very much right now. I fully expect that to change by the end of Q4. Cool. I've got two, uh, and, and it's the same thing that I'm doing with, uh, that I was talked about earlier. Uh, the two I'm looking to exit, uh, Teladoc and Okta, and I'm not actually exiting them because I'm just moving them to the GIA. They don't pay a dividend oh. or anything like that, so I'm fairly happy to just let them soak up their losses in a different portfolio, and I won't have to look at them. Excellent. Okay, should we talk individual stocks now? I mean, we've talked quite a few individual stocks for what it's worth, but we're ready to talk about stuff that is not in any of our portfolios at the moment, I think. Sure. Uh, it's a sort of stocks for Paul, if you will. Mm-hmm. He's not here. 
So stocks nope. for you at home. Mm. Uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, all right, I'll go first. Um, this is only vaguely a stocks for Paul. I mean, I sort of immediately disqualify myself because this doesn't pay a dividend. So Mind mm, stocks for... Mm, yeah, okay. Stocks for not Paul. Um, and maybe that's why Paul's not here. He saw this coming in protest. This is a company called Verisign. A uh, name like Verisign makes it sound like a kind of knackered old billboard company, but it's not a knackered old billboard company. I think it's actually quite interesting in a number of ways. It has a market cap of about 20 billion, so that's, for context, about the same as DoorDash. But unlike DoorDash, this company makes money. So what does a business do? Well, it provides registry services for internet domains, and if you try and look into what it does, you'll have to deal with a lot of technical-sounding stuff about the internet. But what it basically does is register things and provide registry services. So specifically anything with .com or .net. Uh, also, I was looking earlier, any website ending in .name or .tv, so all the big ones, um, but who cares about them anyway, uh, has to pay and register via VeriSign so that, roughly speaking, the complicated world of the internet can connect up the things that we type into the websites themselves. Uh, .org, by the way, which is the other one, is owned by someone else. More on that in a bit. Um, registry services for the internet are fairly cheap to manufacture or run or something like that, which means it has massive margins. Uh, gross margins are 85.6%, operating margins are 65.8%, net margins are 59.1%. These are big numbers. There are legitimate tech companies uh, that dream of having a 59% gross margin. These guys have a 59% net one. Um, what do we always say about high margins, Steve? The worry with those is uh, that somebody's going to come along and uh, eat your lunch. Basically, yes, someone might well come along and start doing it for less. That person is often called Jeff Bezos. Uh, but Bezos isn't going to get to this, and I wouldn't care if he did, because I own Amazon, I don't own this stock. Um, what they do have is a contract with a bunch called the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which is shortened to ICANN. Uh, and that gives them exclusive registry rights on these things. So think of them kind of like a utility, and I'll tell you a bit more about why in a moment then. Uh, but they have the exclusive registry rights for .NET and .com. Uh, no one else can get in their way on that. They're, if you found out these things were protected by contract, Steve, what would be the next question that you would ask? We haven't rehearsed this, by the way. Let's see how no. we go. I, I, sorry, I was typing. That's <laughs> all right. If you found out these things were protected by contracts, uh, what would be the next question you would ask? Uh, when, when do they expire? See? Didn't even need to listen. Yes, when do they expire? Well, there's news on this. Uh, and the news is not good, at least at first sight. The .NET contract expires in 2023, and the .com thing expires in 2024. Hmm. Um, that, on the face of it, since this stuff is a 90-something percent of their revenues, basically it's the entire business. They strictly do some other things as well, but look, this is where the kind of whole story starts and stops. Um, that sounds kind of not great. Uh, but the good news is there's what's called a presumptive right of renewal on these, which basically means that as long as they meet their contractual obligations, i.e. don't bugger everything up, um, these are renewed automatically. They are not kind of put out for tender for anybody else to bid on or anything of the sort. Um, and so far, they've done a solid job of not buggering things up. For about 25 years or so, uh, VeriSign have been uh, doing this kind of thing. So they're a bit like a utility uh, in the sense that they are protected um, by pretty much monopolistic power over something. The other side of the coin with utilities is, well, there's a couple of other sides to the coin. It's a weird-shaped coin, uh, is that they're expensive to run. That doesn't apply uh, to VeriSign. That's the reason utilities get protection, because they have massive capital outlays that they wouldn't make if they didn't get it. Uh, but VeriSign's not like that. But the one thing they do have is 
restrictions on their pricing power. So utilities are not, in virtue of having a monopoly, allowed to just charge you whatever the hell you like for your energy bill, despite what you might be seeing in the news at the moment, and it might feel like that. Verisign equally is not just allowed to charge people whatever the hell they want to register a .com or a .net domain. So when Paul tries to go and register burgundyinvesting.com, uh, he cut, Verisign don't just say, well, that'll be £8 billion, like they really ought to, Could. Uh, to be honest. Yeah, um, they, they really should in the case of Paul. But um, they currently charge $9.02 for a .net um, and $8.39 for a .com. And their, I guess, regulator alike, which is ICANN, uh, allows them to raise that by 10% per year in a .net case and 7% in a .com case annually. So that means a couple of things. It means that like utilities, you have very good visibility of what their earnings are going to do, uh, because generally speaking, these things, if you think they will get renewed, we'll come back to that in a second, the price is going to go up by 10% and 7% respectively, depending on which one you're looking at. Okay, all nice stuff so far. Uh, let's talk valuation for a bit. Valuation is uh, okay from what I can see of it. This is a company that's almost never cheap because something with massive margins and a monopoly and price increases that are almost guaranteed uh, and all kinds of other things like that going for it is likely to be fairly attractive. But the market cap at the moment is $20 billion. It has another $1.7 billion in debt, $233 million in cash and produces $777 uh, per year in free cash flow. So that's a return of about 3.66% when you add all that lot up and divide things by other things. 3.66% uh, is sort of okay. PE is around mm. 25, but with a company with this much debt and uh, a negative book value, I wouldn't use PE to try and value it. I would try and value it based on its cash. Um, I put together kind of three sort of cases here. So bearing in mind, we know that they're allowed 10% and 7% contractual increases. They're likely to go forward like that for some time. I've got a kind of worst case here of about 8% average increase. Uh, which gives you a 5.3% return over 10 years annually. Their best case of 12%, and that gets you a 6.4% return over 10 years, and a kind of middle case of 10%, which is 5.83% uh, return over 10 years. Their share count, they do like a buyback for what it's worth. They don't um, do dividends, but they have brought their share count down from 167 million 10 years ago to 109 million now which basically means they are pulling in their stock at a roughly CAGR of 4.18%, if you want to talk about a kind of yield uh, on this sort of thing. And that means you can sell your stake down at 4.18% and still own the same amount of the overall business, uh, effectively. So you're kind of undiluting yourself in a certain way. What's the risk uh, with this kind of business? It sounds like a nice kind of toll booth thing uh, based on the internet. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I think I probably agree with all of that, which is why I like kind of trying to present it now. Here's the kind of, I mean, there's sort of two risks. One, which I think is vanishingly unlikely, which is that their contract doesn't get renewed because they do something scandalous. And I don't, that would be devastating for what it's worth, but I don't think that's very likely to happen. So let's leave that thought aside for the moment. The other big risk that I can see, or, or significant risk, which is much, much, much more likely, um, is that the rise of apps takes over from websites. So increasingly mm. people feel like they can live without a website. Uh, Facebook can do away with a dot-com thing and we'll just have an app instead. Um, that strikes me as much more plausible, uh, something that might happen and bother things here. And that would be bad because that's pretty much all VeriSign does is registered domains. Um, I think as long as there's websites, there's going to be .coms. I don't see anything else taking over from that. But there's an issue around the rise of apps. 
From what I saw in their last earnings report, there's not much reason to think that's happening yet. In the last quarter, they had a million new dot-coms, which is 0.3% in increase in volume over the previous um, quarter. It's small, but as long as that keeps moving in the right direction, I guess, uh, what you have is enough to kind of give you some some clear sense of where the earnings are going to go with this one. There we are, Verisign. Oh, Buffett owns it. It's like the 13th or so biggest position in the Berkshire portfolio. Last time I looked, they own about 11% of the company. He bought it ages and ages ago. I'd long assumed it was a really boring thing. Uh, And then I went and looked at it. Um, I... I'm just thinking the older viewers, uh, which I'm putting myself squarely in the category of at the moment, um, may remember Verisign from um, when you used to buy things on the internet before Mm. everything else, because you used to get the Verisign Secure and the Verisign Secure 3D. And that used to be the way that you would put your credit card uh, details and that would you that would help you pay. And I, I just had a really quick look at what they did with that business because uh, I assume they just got competed out and kind of retreated back to this. But uh, it turns out they sold it to PayPal, um, mm. which is fairly interesting, for about a billion or $1.1 billion. Um, and it was really a case of seeing what they've done with that sort of money since then. And the answer with that is not an awful lot, really. Um, no, no, not an awful they're lot. They're a very, very steady business with a... Uh, what looks like a fairly impenetrable moat, but it's one of those kind of moats where um, almost a binary event could kill it off. Um, it will kill off the company as a whole as well, but it, it's a very interesting company. It's, it's trading a bit rich, but I guess, you know, when you look at its actual cash conversion figures, or its at least its income conversion figures, um, it looks really impressive. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, its earnings are going at a CAGA of about 14 or so percent, and the 25p is maybe a little high for that. 25p puts it in roughly, I guess, the same conversation as something like Apple. Um, I think it's prob... I'm not sure. It might be better uh, from what I can see of it. I mean, Apple appears to be... It's less predictable, um, only because Verisign is extremely uh, predictable, but um, I'm not sure. I, I think I kind of like this stock here. Mm. What have you got, Steve? Uh, well, just before we go on, CEO has mm. been selling. Uh, just having a quick look at that. Uh, last uh-huh. last month, he sold about four thousand shares. So, uh, I wonder, I wonder what he knows about this beyond the contract that's coming up. But mm, that's about a year away. Yeah. Anyway, um, so mine's a, a bit of a different stock. So, um, pharmaceuticals company. Um, we don't talk about them too much. Um, I mean, we, since we uh, made a Bristol Myers Squid T-shirt and then all sold it. Um, mm-hmm. But this is um, Vertex uh, Pharmaceuticals, which I assume is one that people probably won't have heard of. But you might be shocked to hear just how sort of big it is. But we'll we'll get to that in a in a short while. Um, it's pretty much the leader uh, for therapies to treat cystic fibrosis. Uh, so cystic fibrosis is a, is a genetic disorder. It affects the lungs, the pancreas, the liver, the kidneys, and the intestines. Uh, Vertex itself owns three of the top drugs that are used in treatment and symptom control. Uh, so the company is also working with CRISPR technologies. They're developing an, an exocell, uh, a one-time curative gene therapy uh, and for two um, blood disorders. Uh, that require transfusion, so it's beta thassalemia and the sickle cell uh, disease, so two big um, uh, problematic uh, diseases. Um, and Exocells uh, is currently going through approval at the Food and uh, Drug Administration, and it should go through uh, next month. The the early signs of that uh, it looks like it should go through uh, 
pretty pretty easily, and uh, it should be uh, ready for full submission in early 2023. So uh, Europe is uh, actually due to uh, report back on full submission uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. So that means, so very likely, Vertex is going to have a pretty lucrative, uh, curative therapy that it's going to be able to sell on top of its cystic fibrosis. So, But I just want to go back to cystic fibrosis because at the moment that is that is where all its revenue is. Uh, there are no other approved drugs uh, to treat the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis. Uh, AbbVie has a drug combo that it picked up from um, Galapagos, which is a, a Belgian company, uh, and it's currently in phase one clinical study. But that's way behind where Vertex are. Uh, even if AbbVie's drug proves to be successful, it would at best be three or four years before that drug could win approval. And by that time, Vertex will have further entrenched itself in the cystic fibrosis market. So the three drugs are called, and I'm going to butcher all of them, um, Calideco, uh, Orcambi, and Simdeco. And they have patents that are all due to expire in the next six to eight years. And as we would say uh, with something like Bristol My Squib, that is approaching a patent cliff. Uh, and what you would not want being a, a Vertex shareholder is for them to fall off that patent cliff without anything uh, off the back of it. Luckily, they're one step ahead of you. Uh, they have a drug called Trikafta, uh, which has been approved by the FDA. It has a patent until 2037, and it is essentially a mix of those three top drugs. So the competition will be able to generic its those drugs in, on their own, but Trikafta, a drug that is far superior, according to the FDA, uh, they will not be able to make a generic of until 2037. So they've effectively protected themselves for the next 15 years. Uh, and I think uh, the cystic fibrosis franchise, if we if we can call it a franchise, will still be racking up huge sales come then. So um, just to give you some stats on the numbers, it's a monster business, 77 billion market cap. PE is currently, and that is the way we should value it, they're absolutely optimised for profit. Uh, PE is a 24, uh, forward PE is actually only 19. Uh, in the last uh, three years, they've managed to 3x their revenue. Uh, in the last five years, they've had an annual revenue growth rate of 32.5% per year. Uh, in Over the same period, free cash flow has grown 52% per year. And earnings has grown at an incredible 192% per year. So this is a company that's churning out, you know, a lot of money, a lot of cash. Uh, it's very highly profitable. It doesn't pay a dividend. Unfortunately, it's not buying back shares either at the moment. But it is using that money to flex that pipeline, uh, to build out that pipeline. And uh, I think we might potentially have another giant pharma company on our hands here. Yeah, I have heard of Vertex before. I never got round to digging into it, but the reason I know the name is because when I used to do a bit more work looking at screeners uh, than I currently do, pretty much every fundamental screener I put in, this came up as Screaming something by. that had some very mm. nice numbers attached to it one way or another. I think Magic Formula, for what it's worth, really quite likes this. So a couple of things on this then. One is that I might be a customer kind of further down the line, not in the sense that I might contract sickle cell disease or something, but I actually have beta thalassemia. Um, hmm. And it's relatively, it's one of these things that you would like to clear up, but doesn't particularly debilitate them. So hmm. what that disease does basically is it matters if you ever have kids. Uh, it's, it 
if you pass a couple of recessive things, you can have a baby born with a significant deformity. So if, like me, you know you have it, your partner will need to get tested or the um, whoever it is is providing the other part of the genetic material, uh, I guess. It may or may not be a partner in these days. Um, but on to the stuff about uh, what they have going on with um, their existing drugs. So they pretty much have a monopoly kind of clamp on this then and that's going to last quite a while here to 2037 i like the sound of this um stuff in the sort of cystic fibrosis space they you said they've been growing quite fast i sort of wonder i kind of see them as maybe a maturing business you said there's no buyback no dividend at the moment at which point my inner paul asks immediately how do we get the cash out of this thing ever uh, and it's a fair question, but I think I see this as a kind of maturing business, right? I mean, they are busy building out their pipeline, yes, um, and they are constantly innovating, yes. But when you think about other, what we would think of as mature um, pharma companies, so Bristol Myers Squibb or Glaxo or Pfizer or whoever, they don't just sit there churning and producing cash and dividending it all out again. They are active in building out their pipelines, and this is a thing that we think about or try to evaluate when we look at these. So my sense is that, look, Vertex might well be kind of getting ready to kind of turn itself that way. It's got uh, a really nice kind of um, patent protection for the next 15 years or so. I wonder whether there might be shareholder returns coming in this situation. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's it's only around the corner. Uh, they do have another four uh, cystic fibrosis drugs that are currently in phase four as well, so mm -hmm. uh, they will probably soon have seven of the top uh, uh, drugs, uh, well, maybe eight of the top drugs in cystic fibrosis. So this is definitely their area of expertise. But um, they're thinking that cystic fibrosis, because it's so, uh, it's been one of those diseases that's been almost essentially unchallenged, that uh, potentially there are the ways in which they treat cystic fibrosis are something that they can apply on other things as well. And they've tried the hand at bits and pieces. So they've tried the hands at things like pain and they've got something in phase two at the moment, although they're finding that the dose on that has to be quite significant to for it to actually work. Um, but they're just kind of trying to figure out now with the FDA whether they think that maybe giving somebody a high doses is something that's that's worth doing um, but a lot of their things at the moment are they have something where they're looking at type 1 diabetes uh, they're also out licensing a lot of drugs as well at the moment just to kind of keep their own costs down and, and bringing some revenue and letting um, Merck work on three drugs mm -hmm. at the moment so uh, they're an in incredibly impressive business and there's only so long you can have an operated margin of about 36.7 it's actually 49 if you do trail in 12 months um, and it's been in the high 40s as well but there's only so long you can have an operating margin of that kind of amount and not start to give some mm -hmm. of that back to shareholders mm -hmm. so I think we will see uh, you know uh, they've taken on a little bit of debt because they, they made an acquisition it was their first bit of debt uh, it's about 887 million in terms of uh, what they actually generate in free cash uh, that's uh, quite quite comfortably covered um, yeah so I think we'll probably start to see, uh, uh, we might start to see a dividend. We may start to see some buybacks. But at the moment, they've got a perfectly reasonable excuse in that they build up this pipeline first and then mm -hmm. you, know, you can have returns for the next 15 years. Yep, pretty much. That seems to be a, so I think we kind of have two fairly similar sorts of companies there. They're both big. They both have, uh, I guess we would call it a moat of an intangible source, uh, either a contract or a patent or so on. Um, they're both fairly concentrated, one on domain registry and one on, at the moment, cystic fibrosis, although that one's expanding out a bit. Um, lots of interesting things to think about here, I guess. Um, broadly speaking, we're looking in kind of similar territory, albeit in different sectors. 
yeah, we've just found two really, really high margin businesses that have got mm-hmm. their business screwed down. Cool. Well, those were our stocks uh, and those were our portfolios as well for the start of Q4. Who knows where we'll be by the end of the year. Um, that's about all we've got time for this time. We've gone well through the hour mark along with some other stuff along the way. Um, thank you all very much for listening. Please do like and subscribe. Uh, we're getting close to that thousand mark now. So if there's anyone that you can think of that would uh, be interested in subscribing, please do give them a nudge. Uh, we don't normally kind of encourage this sort of thing, but it'd be great for us to get through the thousand sooner rather than later if we can. We'll say a bit more about it next time. But for now, thanks for listening.